You're listening to Working, the show about what people do all day. I'm your host, Greg Lavalley, and I'm the Director of Technology here at Slate. On this mini-series of Working, brought to you by Microsoft, we'll be talking to coders, people who write software every day to help you log into websites, give you access to public data sets, or figure out where satellites are in space. For this episode, I sat down with Adam Michaels, who writes code that's used to track satellites for NASA. Not all developers are web developers, and Adam is far from it. I was really excited to talk to someone writing code with such high stakes, and the programs that Adam writes are just that, making sure that million-dollar satellites aren't bonking into each other and filling space with debris. What is your name and what do you do? My name is Adam Michaels. I'm an engineer over at the NASA Goddard Space Flight Center. I work as a flight dynamics engineer for a company called Omatron. It's a government contractor and we work on site at NASA. And what is, a, what is a flight dynamics engineer? The dynamics of what kind of flights, I guess? So it's the flight of spacecraft, the spacecraft flight. There at the NASA Goddard Space Flight Center, there's a rightfully named facility called the Flight Dynamics Facility, where they, they monitor the navigation of many satellites that this center um, maintains. And what sort of brought you into doing this? What was your background that made you end up dynamically coding flight things. So my interest was really in space travel in general. I think that right now we're living in this exciting time of a space 2.0. It's like a, a boom of new spacecraft uh, activities. And so I got this bug for doing spacecraft uh, dynamics and spacecraft navigation. It's a booming field right now. So I studied physics when I was in undergrad. And that's how I got some of the foundational understanding for how things move through space. And once I did that, then I got a job over at a startup in Israel, where I had my first job doing this uh, spacecraft navigation work. And was your first job as a computer programmer? Yeah, so that's kind of, uh, this is kind of a unique take on my pathway to programming is, it really started with space first, and my interest was always in space. And I found that it wasn't until I got on the job that I realized how integral doing programming was to the work of an engineer. And then once you figured that out, was that like, okay, well, I better go learn how to program? Or did it just sort of happen? It did just sort of happen. And so the programming that I ended up starting with was out of necessity more than something that uh, I built up through some kind of computer science background. So on the job, we were using MATLAB for some of the more basic um, high-level coding. And then I got into Python to work on more of the automation and, uh, and also for just generally um, making my job easier. You can automate a lot of your job with Python. Got it. So to you, code is like a tool to help make your job easier? Yeah, it's a mix of coding for kind of automating my own job, which is a helpful thing to do. But it's also for general analysis. So if I ever need to understand a mass amount of data or I need to look in some complicated file structure, I can use some of the packages that are readily available to dig in a little bit deeper and try to understand exactly what I'm looking at through Python. Can you give an example of like something that you would automate that wasn't automated before? Absolutely. So some of the tools that we use at NASA, at least at the Flight Dynamics Facility, are COTS tools. So these are commercial off-the-shelf tools. And this is kind of the foundational software that we use a lot of the time. Now, this isn't uh, necessarily already it's not coming out of the box where you're able to automate it. So using some of these tools, you can say, okay, 
well, let's say I want to know where a spacecraft is going to be, but there's a lot of uncertainty. We use methods such as uh, Monte Carlo, a Monte Carlo approach, which allows you to say, okay, well, this is my region of uncertainty for where a spacecraft is. Now I want to see where it's going to be for the next few years. You can sample throughout your box of uncertainty and say, okay, these are all the possibilities for where a spacecraft is going to go. Then at the end, you take all that information and you say, wow, this is my whole space of where this spacecraft is going to be. No pun intended. That's right. Um, what kind of spacecraft are we talking about here? So a lot of these that we work on at the NASA Goddard Space Flight Center are the ones that are either in Earth orbit, moon orbit, or sun orbit. So one of the missions that I'm working on right now is called TESS. It's the Transiting Exoplanet Surveying Satellite. So this is actually looking for, for planets that are outside of our solar system. So that's one example of uh, spacecraft that we work on heavily. It actually, just last week during Black Hole Week at NASA, uh, they released a finding where it spotted a black hole. And it's very interesting seeing what these satellites are capable of. This podcast is sponsored by RAMP. Are you the decision maker in your company? Consider this. For the first time in decades, there's a better option for a corporate card and spend management platform. Meet RAMP, the only corporate card and spend management system designed to help you spend less money so you can make more. Most corporate credit cards offer points as incentives, but those points amount to less than their worth in real cash value. RAMP's business cards offer you cash back, real money in your pocket. Plus, you control who spends what with each vendor. And RAMP software collects and verifies receipts automatically, which means you'll stop wasteful spending and close your books in hours instead of days. Businesses that use RAMP add up to 5% to their bottom line the first year. If you're a decision maker, adding RAMP could be one of the best decisions you've ever made. And now get $250 when you join RAMP for free. Just go to RAMP.com easy. RAMP.com easy. R-A-M-P easy. Currents issued by Sutton Bank and Celtic Bank members of DIC terms and conditions apply. Is there anything that you think is unique about coding for one of those environments versus another? Like, does going around the sun make anything different in what you have to do versus going around the Earth or the moon? Like, I, can't, I can't imagine that being a variable. Yeah. Um, well, something about the difference between those is the Earth is a really known celestial body, right? Like we've been on this world for a long time and we have a really good understanding of the lumps and the craters all around Earth. But if you're going around something like the moon, it's a little bit less so, or Mars, where it hasn't really been observed in the way that Earth has. So the gravity of these planets become an uncertainty in your system. And when you're uh, applying some of the models that we have, you end up uh, needing to account for those uncertainties. So like you have to account for the idea that there is an unknown crater that would affect the gravity of a spacecraft? That's right. And so with spacecraft dynamics, that's our whole job is to figure out exactly where a satellite is and where it's going. So things like gravity become the most important part. Whoa. What about all these satellites circling around Earth that are going to crash into each other and <laughs> go into fiery balls and make a big ring of dead garbage around right. the planet? <laughs> well, something that you got to remember is also that space is so big and these satellites are so small in comparison. So... I think on average, you don't have to worry about it as much as you think you do. Tell me a little bit about like your just day-to-day -day stuff. So the, the daily life of a person who programs at NASA, is it a nine-to-five thing or how does it work? Yeah, it is a nine-to-five thing for the most part. There's something that you got to keep in mind is that there's also really the way that we think about time is different on Earth than it is in space. And, you know, working a nine-to-five job isn't exactly necessary when there's satellites moving and changing directions at any given time. So just last week, 
rather than working the nine to five, what I did is I shifted my day a little bit to make sure that I could be on the same schedule as a satellite that was maneuvering. Do you have to explain that to other people in your life when you're like, <laughs> I can't hang out, there's a satellite? Yeah, that's right. But I think they understand. Um, how often does that happen? It happens pretty often. I mean, you have satellites that need to change their orbits because of different reasons. So um, it's part of our job at the Flight Dynamics Facility to make sure that once they do that maneuvering or that that change in uh, what their orbit is, that we can tell the different operations center or the science teams exactly where their satellite is. When you say that you tell somebody where a satellite is going to be, mm-hmm. what, is that, what does that look like? Do you give them like three numbers or do you give them like a group of numbers or do you give them a visualization in space that's a diagram? Uh-huh. Like what is that? So the way to tell where a spacecraft is at one given time is a time and six numbers. And you can define those six numbers in any kind of way that you want, but it needs to fully define some system. So usually we give the different facilities a list of times and where the and those six numbers, if that makes any sense. So what they can do is they can take that file or whatever that information is, like maybe it's not defined exactly as, as I said, like it's not in like some nice, easy to read way, but the general idea is that. What they can do is they take that and they put that in different softwares that we also have, which allows you to visualize exactly what the orbit of the spacecraft is. So it's a really powerful tool with this really impressive graphical user interface where you're able to click around actually through space and time and figure out exactly what the orientation of the spacecraft is compared to the different planets, you know, how exactly it looks in space. Yeah, I was going to say, like, it's in relation to something. Otherwise, you'd just be sort of moving it around in a large, dark expanse. Yeah, that's right. How do you go through time? Do you, like, scroll through time? It's like a timeline kind of thing, just like how you have on on your Adobe Premiere type of software. Like video editing. Yeah, exactly, where you have a scroller where you can actually, like, step through time and see exactly how the orbit of your satellite evolves. So you mentioned Python as the language that you're programming in for some things. Is that your language of choice, and is it one that you use all the time? Yeah, so Python became the most useful language for sure. Something that I found is that when I first started this job, we're also not only are we just programming in Python, but we're also speaking with the software teams at the Flight Dynamics facility who are programming in a more lower level, more of the foundational code that we use, foundational software that we use uh, every day. So not only do I need to know Python, but it's also really helpful if I have at least a background or a basic understanding of things like C++ or Java, things like that, where I can speak in the same language as the software people developing the lower level functions. You talked a little bit about gravity affecting what you have to program. I guess I'm curious if there are any other like unknowns that you have to account for or things that you have to account for when doing this kind of software that you find really surprising. One of the interesting things is that we have two of the other kind of big unknowns that we have to deal with as flight dynamics analysts is, let's say we're around the Earth. There's the atmosphere that extends, you know, so many thousand kilometers above the surface of the Earth. So because of how the spacecraft is traveling through this atmosphere or lack of atmosphere, we don't entirely know how much that is going to affect the trajectory of the satellites. So something like drag or atmospheric effects are something that we have to take into account on Earth, but not on the moon, for instance. And if you go to Mars, it's also unknown. So you end up having to deal with a large uncertainty factor there. Another big one is the effect of how the solar 
activity affects your spacecraft. And so depending on how big the area that's facing the sun is, it'll affect your satellite in a different kind of ways. Like what? Like it gets hot or are there like <laughs> particles that hit it that are annoying? Well, the photons are kind of annoying. So the photons are pushing on your satellite in some kind of way. And as long as you have a solid understanding of what your spacecraft looks like from all directions, you can model an effect like that really well. But if you don't have it, then there's going to be some uncertainty in what your orbit is going to be. So in some sense, you have to have like a, some concept of the geometry and then effects of photons on geometry of the spacecraft? Yeah, pretty much. There's some things that we do to to kind of put a blanket over this problem. We say, okay, let's picture the satellite as just one big ball. And after a while, the effects are going to average out. So there's, there's certain there's assumptions that you can make when you're working with these satellites to help define the model a little bit better for where your orbit is predicted to be. What's your team atmosphere like? It's a really collaborative um, atmosphere. It's really non-competitive. It's a very cooperative atmosphere where I'm working. Is there a single repository of code that people are contributing to in some way and then reviewing what the other people have written? Yeah, so at the high level, the stuff that I'm that we're doing on, on our team as uh, the engineers or like the analysts, a lot of our code is, yeah, it's configuration managed using Git methods. And so that ends up being a way to make sure that not only are we all checking each other's work because it's all in a central repository, but we also have the ability to uh, revert back to any old code bases. So that way we never get into much trouble. What is the biggest mistake that you've made uh, in your programming career? <laughs> oh, God. I don't know the answer to that. I don't even know if I should even say what the answer is, even if it was. Uh, can you think of a mistake that you've made in the last month and a half? Well, can we skip that one? Yeah, totally. Okay. It's a fun one. It is really fun. <laughs> I wish that I had like a fun answer for it. Like that wasn't like out. terrifying. The The Did stakes are a... so high right. where I work. So little mistakes end up propagating, right? And become a much bigger disaster than you ever could have anticipated. So what's also just a backtracking to the cooperative nature of the place I'm working is that we're constantly checking each other's work because of how high the stakes are. Yeah, that's something I was curious about. So we've talked to people who work on mostly websites, um, and then some people who work on, you know, geographical maps, which have potentially higher stakes, like someone might, you know, drive their truck into a bridge because it was mapped as being higher than it is. Can you talk about how, how like, you have to adjust what you program and how you work together to make sure that you don't make these mistakes that propagate? Yeah, so we have, we have systems set up where, uh, let's say I have an idea of where I think a satellite's going to be. There's systems set up for exactly this, where it does some quality assurance on everything that you're doing. So before we tell the operations center or the science center where exactly a satellite is predicted to be, we have kind of a baseline set of quality assurance checks that it must meet before it can be sent out. Not only do we have that, but we also have certain situations set up where if it's a more important delivery that we're going to make to a certain center, that we'll have another person come in and just look over our shoulder right before we send something out. Thinking a little bit more about the repercussions of mistakes, do you have experience with other sort of software systems and do you find that those are more easygoing? Yeah, so that's also an interesting question because it uh, takes me back to a different time in my career when I was working at a startup. Before I had this job at NASA, I was working at a company 
um, in Israel. It's called Space IL. It was part of this Google Lunar X Prize to try to put spacecraft on the moon. So the environment there was a startup vibe rather than what NASA is, you know, a, a giant government facility, right? So what I found interesting between the two systems is with the startup vibe, you have people building the code from the ground up, right? While at NASA, you have legacy systems that you're working from. So with the startup where you're building the code from the ground up, you have the ability to change things as they're being written. You have all the creative control over some of these systems. But with something like NASA, where we were brought in when we have some of this historical code that we're working with, a lot of times you don't have the ability to go back and either look at the source code or even, of course, change the source code. So what ends up happening is you're building on top of what was given to you, which is a different way of thinking about code. I don't know. How do you deal with it then? If you, right. if you run into some COBOL from the 50s and <laughs> it doesn't work like you'd want it to. You find a way. I, I think what ends up happening is that you end up finding less bugs with the code that's been around for so long because it's had revision after revision to get upgraded to you know, a really high standard, which is different than you building code from the ground up where you're going to run into things that you never anticipated. So it's great when you can come into a job like this where you have the history behind you and you're, you're really standing on the shoulders of like the giants that wrote this code in the first place and you can put faith in the fact that this is very solid code. So there's no like move fast and break things poster? <laughs> exactly, in the right, right. This is the story of the one. As head of maintenance at a concert hall, he knows the show must always go on. That's why he works behind the scenes ensuring every light is working, the HVAC is humming, and his facility shines. With Granger's supplies and solutions for every challenge he faces, plus 24-7 customer support, his venue never misses a beat. Call quickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. Can you talk about the first program that you remember writing that you liked? Yeah, so something that I did for a job um, my first job at uh, Space IL, the one that I mentioned before, part of the job was to design a system where we were going to simulate different tracking data that we were going to receive during the mission to make sure that we we'd be able to accurately predict where a satellite's going to be during our mission to the moon. So something that I did was build GUI, a graphical user interface, to allow us to use a software that we had to simulate different measurements for different tracking schemes. So this was a great way to start out because it used it needed the knowledge of how the software worked, but it also required me to be constantly Googling different ways of programming a GUI. What's a tracking scheme? You said tracking scheme. I don't know what that is. Yeah, so uh, something that we deal with a lot at the Flight Dynamics facility is different tracking schedules from the different satellites. So to figure out where a satellite is in general, we're getting different radiometric tracking data from, from different ground stations around the Earth. And they can't be tracking one satellite all the time. So what happens is they split up their time between different satellites and they say, okay, for this given amount of time, let's say an hour, we're going to be tracking one satellite. And the, the issue is, yeah, it would be great. You'd be able to figure out exactly where your satellite is if you had constant tracking from these ground stations. But because you need to split the time with, with the different satellites or it ends up costing a lot of money to be tracking all the time, uh, you end up having to split it up into different kind of short arcs. For people that are listening that have never programmed a line of code, is there something that you think you'd like to explain to them about 
programming in general or programming for your job that they don't already know? I think what's nice about jumping into code right now is how accessible it is to everybody. I think that it's different if you were stepping into code maybe 20 years ago, where now not only are the programming languages like Python really high level, and you can almost code as if you're talking, and you can say, you know, for this line in this thing, do something to it. It's almost how it's written. So not only is it accessible to everybody, but it also having the internet as a resource is so helpful because you can use one of these sites like Stack Overflow where somebody has had this problem before, somebody else has solved it, and you can really just jump right in. So I think what's helpful to know is just how accessible the world of programming is to every day. I think what's also a good way to get into it is to have some project that you're working on because at least for my job starting off, I didn't know any programming, but by having certain these, some of these projects like building that tracking data simulator, it became a more approachable goal because you know exactly what the end game should be, end goal should look like. So just like everyone else, you spend a, a lot of time Googling your way into or out of problems? That's right. And there's no shame in that. <laughs> Do you think that there are problems that are unique that are harder to Google because of the kind of stuff that you're working on? Yeah, I think that some of the, some of the time what we do is when we're programming using Python where we're interfacing with certain softwares that are not commonly used, you end up stuck somewhere where no one else has had this problem before. Do you have an internal way to share that kind of knowledge as well? Internally, we do. Absolutely. Yeah. Like a wiki or something? Yeah, we have a wiki type page. And that became, you know, a really helpful resource to share some of this knowledge where, you know, one person has figured it out, somebody has written it up. And yeah, it's a great way to share some of that knowledge. Can you talk through just your average day and sort of like what your schedule of events is for yourself? Yeah, so uh, usually I get in around 8.39. And there's certain activities that we have to do every day to make sure that the tracking that we're receiving from the satellites looks okay. There's certain other activities to make sure that all of the different facilities that we're sending out information to about where their satellites is, they get the information in a timely manner. So that usually takes up a lot of the morning. And then toward the end of the day, or like the second half of the day, it's spent doing different kinds of analyses that are necessary for maybe trying to figure out more accurately where a satellite's going to be or, or things like that. It's split between operations and analysis is also another way to look at it, yeah. How many meetings do you think you'd have in an average week? That's something that I try not to think about. But <laughs> yeah, I think no matter where you are, you have a lot of meetings. That seems to be the consensus. It might just be the right number. And that's why everybody <laughs> has a lot. Right. We've employed this new standing meeting for some, of the, for some of the things that we have. And that's been really helpful. Like in a standing meeting, like you actually do not sit. That's right. Standing up the whole time. People are uncomfortable. So you want it to be over with as soon as possible. Uh, does anybody sit down in your standing meeting? <laughs> um. That is a requirement to stand up. Oh, nice. Uh-huh. Yeah, okay. I've been to places that have some sitters. Okay. It's okay. That's all right. <laughs> <laughs> some people think that uh, coders work mostly at night, drinking Mountain Dew and wearing <laughs> hoodies. Uh, do you share any traits with this stereotype? I think typically because of, how, um, because of how the work that we do at NASA ends up being where it's really helpful to be there during the day, being around all the other uh, analysts, all the developers, Having that nine to five kind of shared with them is really helpful. Uh, I definitely have, I definitely wear that outfit, but not necessarily like live that lifestyle. Another part of that stereotype tends to be that coders have to have some project that they're working on at night. I mean, do you have life outside of work or are you still coding all night long on something else? <laughs> yeah, absolutely. I think that, you know, part of 
really getting into a problem is you also think about it outside of work. So even if I'm not programming, I'm definitely thinking about how to solve different problems that I have when I'm outside of work. I honestly feel like that ends up helping a lot of times when you have a minute to step away from programming and sometimes the solution just comes to you. Has that ever happened in a dream? It has, unfortunately. Yeah. Same. Kind of a nightmare, but. <laughs> do you think that programmers should subscribe to an ethical code the same way that doctors do? And I think the example that I thought of when I was thinking about this question was the Volkswagen Dieselgate case, where the software engineer who led the, the group that programmed it to operate differently when it's on the test machine versus off the test machine ended up getting sentenced to prison time. Wow. I think because of how, how high the stakes are and because of the repercussions, like as we talked about, at least in my line of work, absolutely. I think that having some kind of guidelines for what's acceptable code and what's not is, uh, is really important. And not only that, but you know, speaking about the test cases, I think that it's also really important to make sure that you're building your test cases in a way that is really putting your code through the ringer. So you can trust that once it gets released, then you can feel confident in its uh, use. I have some lightning round questions. Okay. Tabs or spaces? Oh, I'm a tab guy, but I make sure then all the IDEs that I use, they replace the tabs with spaces. So that way I don't have to worry about it later. Emoji in code, good idea or bad idea? <laughs> that does not sound like a good idea. Favorite programming language to code in? Python for sure. Okay. 80 character column widths? I'm more of a 100 column guy. All right. Uh, favorite code editor? <sighs> Yeah, so right now I work in Spider, which is what comes with uh, Anaconda. It's the kind of like a larger distribution of Python. It comes with like a bunch of helpful tools. So because of how the facility is set up, we can't get any software that we want. So we kind of have to rely on the things that we're given. And Spider became a really helpful tool for, for programming in. Deploying code on Fridays, bad idea or worst idea? Ooh, that does not sound good. Do you have an opinion on the caps lock key? And if so, what is it? <laughs> um, no opinion. No opinion. Do you use the caps lock key? I don't. I've never right. used the caps lock key. I'm more of a pinky shift and type kind of guy. When was the last time you updated your personal website? If you I, have one. Yeah, I don't have a personal website. I don't have a GitHub. I have nothing. Wow. Um, it's all, yeah, it's all the work shared stuff. Adam, thanks so much for coming in. This is a great conversation. Thank you for having me, Greg. This was great. I also wanted to add that if this work is interesting to anybody that's listening, we're always looking for people to do software development at our facility. So feel free to reach out to Omatron HR if you have any questions or you're interested. Great. We'll put a link in the notes. Thanks so much. Thank you. That's it for this episode of Working. Once again, I'm your host, Greg Lavalley. If you like the show, please give us a rating and review on Apple Podcasts. If you have any thoughts or questions, you can email us at working at slate.com. Working is produced by Jessamine Molly. Special thanks to Justin D. Wright for the ad music. All three of these episodes of Coders are in your feed now. So if you like this episode, go listen to the other two. 